Hey there, my name is Ren. I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly, and you've joined us today for our online service, and uh, we're glad. This is part three of our, our series that we have currently going called Unstoppable. Last week, we, had, uh, we were, we were um, extremely blessed to have Joe Ash Thomas from International Justice Mission, and uh, I hope you were blessed by that message, and maybe, maybe even a little bit uh, convicted and a little bit um, shaken up by the message. I know I was. Well, as many of you know, I spent uh, five years as an educational assistant before I became a pastor, and uh, I never thought about becoming an educational assistant. Actually, I didn't even ever even apply to become an educational assistant. It just seemed to happen. For four years, I was working uh, for a Christian organization under contract in three of the highest need schools in Oshawa, and my job was to create safe places uh, for students, uh, safe places after school where they could do their homework and get help, uh, safe places where they, they could be involved in activities. And uh, during the day, my job was to peer mentor a lot of those students. Our, our, our child and youth workers were overwhelmed. They could never fit in the number of needs that were in those schools. And so I take a lot of times to the overflow and help them with a lot of their problem solving skills, their life skills. And if there was a major issue, I, we had a partnership with um, Children's Aid Society and also Durham Regional Police um, that we would get them in contact with if they were they were actually in any serious danger. Now near the time of the contract renewal, a complaint was raised that because the organization that uh, did the hiring um, was a Christian organization, therefore when I was hired I had to sign a statement of faith saying that my my values aligned with uh, the company's values. Uh, there was a there was a accusation made that there was uh, discrimination in our hiring practices and so the Ontario government must have agreed and they decided that they were going to terminate the contract at the end of the four years despite how well the program was doing uh, by all accounts and the program was given an end date because well because the Christian organization was running it so there was no appeal it was just done and one of the principles I was working with um, knowing that I was out of the job at the end of that, that time period offered me a full-time educational assistant position right there on the spot, which is sort of a big deal. Those, those jobs are not easy to come by, and I, I didn't realize at the time, but I realize now how much of a big deal that was. But here's the interesting part about being an educational assistant. See, the classroom teacher, your job is to assist the classroom teacher, and by extension, assist the students in that classroom with the work that they're doing. And the classroom teacher prepares the lesson. Uh, they have time to study the lesson. They have time to understand the material inside out. Often the EA is seeing the material for the first time when the students are seeing it. Um, so they may be helping a grade five class and the class is currently working on multiplying fractions. And the educational assistant, the last time that they multiplied fractions was, well, when they were in grade five. And sometimes, and a lot of times, the way things are taught now are a lot different than when I was a grade five student and the way they were taught to me. And so it's bringing, trying to grab some of that information and remember some of that information can be tough at times. Let's be honest, some of the things that you were taught as a student in elementary school, um, you'll never forget. But there are some things that you chose to forget about three seconds after you took the test that you needed that information for. You'll never ever care about again. One of the things that everyone learned was about prepositions. You remember prepositions, right? Now, if you don't, here's the definition. A word governing and usually preceding a noun or pronoun and expressing a relation to another word or element in the clause. 
Now, I'm guessing you're probably looking about as confused right now as you were when you first learned about prepositions. But a preposition is basically a word that goes in front of a noun in a sentence that shows um, the direction, the time, or the place, or relationship. And so a, a preposition can change the meaning of a sentence. If you change a, pre a preposition, it can cause confusion and sometimes cause stress. Let me give you an example. So I could say four-year-old Jimmy is in the church. Now the word in is the preposition. It, it shows location. Jimmy, little Jimmy, he's in the church, which you'd be like, okay, that's great. We, you know, it, that's a good place for him to be. We're happy with little Jimmy being in the church. But if I change that preposition, and the sentence now says four-year-old Jimmy is on the church, well, now we have a problem. Now uh, there's a huge sense of urgency. We need to get little Jimmy off of the church. And so you, you can see how changing the preposition can change uh, everything. It's one letter and it changes everything. So if I were to say, hey, come with me, buddy. Well, that's kind of welcoming. It's like, hey, he wants me to come with him and he kind of thinks I'm his buddy. He considers me a buddy. And, but if I were to say, come at me, buddy. No, that's, that's, that's a little bit different. I changed the preposition and all of a sudden it's kind of aggressive. We're about to fight and I don't know, about, I don't know if he really thinks that I'm his buddy. I think that was a little bit uh, uh, mocking in a way. A prepositional change can suddenly change the meaning of the, the sentence and, and, it, and the, so your response changes to how you feel about that sentence in, the, in that situation. And I believe for many of us, we grew up in churches where perhaps the wrong preposition was used. Some of you grew up in, prep, in, in churches where the preposition for was used and it should have been from. And, and when you mix up these two things, it actually changes how you view God. Because you were taught that you are living for God's love. Like if you clean up your life enough and if you follow rules A, B, C, and D, and uh, you can work towards or for God's love. But that couldn't be further from the truth because you're actually living from God's love. That's what the Bible actually teaches. It teaches that we live from God's love, that there's nothing that you can do that can make, you, make God love you more. There's nothing that you can do that will make God love you less. God's love is unconditional. We don't, we don't live for God's love. We live from God's love. It changes. When you, when you look at it that way, it changes how you see God. And maybe you grew up in a home where this preposition was messed up. Because you were supposed to live from your parents' love. But you spent your childhood, perhaps even into adulthood, living for your parents' love. Like you felt like nothing you ever did was good enough. That they were always disappointed in you. That you were constantly trying to gain their approval. And you were trying to live for their love when you really, you were supposed to be living from their love. And it changed how you viewed your relationship with them. And maybe it still affects how you, the relationship you have with them today. Or maybe you've grown up in a church living for God's blessing. And that's what was taught to you or modeled or maybe even implied. That if you want to see God bless you, it, it's dependent and reliant upon you. That your performance can change the blessing of your life. And if you aren't blessed, it's probably because you didn't earn it. But all the while, God wanted you to live from his blessing. I mean, you only have to look at the story of the cross. I mean, we're going to, uh, today is the day where we celebrate communion. And we're going to celebrate the fact that God gave us his son as a sacrifice 
for his sins. And it had nothing to do with how worthy mankind was, because we weren't. He blessed us from his mercy, from his goodness. You and I need to have proper prepositions when it comes to, to God. It's equally true when we look at the spiritual battles that, that, that wage on in our lives. Because if you think that we are fighting for victory, you can live a life that is stressed and worried and anxious. We, we, where we get into this place where we, we live like, where we live like victory depends on us. And it creates this fear from when we look around and we see the things that we see around us. Like, what's going to come down the line? I don't know what's going to happen next. I, what, if, what if my political party doesn't get in? What, what if this law changes? What, if, what, what could happen in the future? Because you see it as if we're fighting for victory, and victory depends on us. But the Bible teaches that we're actually, we're actually fighting from victory. That the battle's already been won. Jesus took care of that on the cross. And so if you're fighting from victory, it changes your outlook. If you're, if you're fighting from victory, you have confidence when everything else around you seems to, be, seems to be in shambles, when everything else seems to be at odds of the things you believe. If you're fighting from victory, you have this peace because you know how the story ends. That changes everything. It's a simple preposition. But a change of one word can change your life. And Jesus want to remind you in John 16, 33, he says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I have, he says. Not I will, not I can, not I hope to, I have. You are fighting from victory, not for victory. So the Bible talks a lot about this in Revelation. And so for the rest of our time left together, we're going to actually be studying from Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, it's like a spoiler of what's going to happen. I mean, you may have heard this phrase, spoiler alert, kicked around. Maybe someone writes this in their Facebook status because they want to talk about a TV show that was on recently or they want to talk about a movie that they just watched. And, and, and they want you to know, I'm about to give away some of the major plot lines or possibly the ending to this show or this movie. And so if you haven't seen this movie and you hope to and you don't want it spoiled for you, I'm writing at the very top, spoiler alert, this is your warning, do not keep reading or I might spoil the whole thing for you. Well, Revelation could open with this phrase, spoiler alert. But Revelation doesn't spoil the story. It tells you what's going to happen in the end so that you can enjoy the story. You know, there was a study done at the University of California where they actually did an experiment. They took a, a group of people and they gave them these, a number of short stories for them to read. In one segment of the people, they, gave them, they told them what was going to happen at the end of the story before they started reading the story. And, and what, what happened was the, the people that knew the end of the story, they found that they read the story differently. There wasn't the level of suspense, but there was a deeper level of understanding, a, a, a deeper level of reading that went on because they were able to understand what was going on, knowing what was happening at the end. In some cases, they actually enjoyed the story more. And I think that's true, but I think there's a few exceptions. Like... If someone spoils the story for you, but it's not the ending that you were hoping for, it doesn't enhance the story for you. It actually makes it a little more miserable as you're reading through it because you just kind of don't want to get to the end now. Here's another example. 
sometimes when there's a, there's a big game on, and I might have another time commitment during that time of that game, I don't want anybody to tell me um, what the score is, because a lot of times I'll record it or I'll try and find a stream when I get home that I can watch it on. And I want to watch it as if, uh, with no information at all, I want to watch it as if it's live, so I can be completely into it. And I won't listen to the radio on the way home. I won't look at the internet. If you're talking about it in advance beforehand, I will walk away from you in case you spoil it. I just don't want it spoiled. And I remember one time, it was back in the late 1990s, the Toronto Maple Leafs were, were in the playoffs. And they were playing a big game, probably a game seven, I don't remember. But I, me I think it was a deciding game in the series. And I had to work that night. I worked for a copy editing place in downtown Toronto. And, uh, and it, my, my shift was something like 3 to 11. So I was going to be working the entire time that the game was on. And so I was recording it at home. And I had, told, I had this foolish idea that somehow I could get through the whole shift without, any, without finding out. And I, I did pretty well. All my coworkers, there was about 25 of them in the room with me. They all knew. I, I didn't want to know the score. And uh, so nobody spoiled it for me. Now, this was back in the late 90s. Not everybody had a cell phone. Actually, hardly anybody had a cell phone. And, and they didn't have data on it. So it's not like um, people had the score at their, at their fingertips. So really, nobody knew to, to spoil it for me. So my, my, my goal was get out, there that, get out of there that night, get home, watch the game and not let anybody spoil it for me. Well, about 10 o'clock, all of a sudden, it seemed like the entire city started honking their horns and people were in the, in the streets celebrating while we were working. And I was like, ah, I already know who won now. The odd part was this, because my team had won, it didn't feel like it was so spoiled. When I, when I sat down to watch the game, I. I wasn't on edge the way you normally would be in a game seven or a deciding game. I, I wasn't nervous. Um, I, I, knew, I knew what the ending was. I knew that we, were, I knew we had victory. When one of the best, our, our best players got hurt, I was like, normally I'd be like, oh no, how are we gonna win now? I was like, okay, it's, it'll be fine because I already know we're gonna win. When, when we got down in score, it was like 2-1 and, and, like, and it was late in the game. I'm, I'm, I wasn't thinking, oh no, we've lost. I was thinking, this is going to be great because I know we win. So they're going to come back and win 3-2. This is going to be incredible. And that's what Revelation is. Revelation is the car horns in the street. You know, Revelation is the celebration of victory. Revelation, Re Revelation is the, the spoiler. When it seems like we're behind, when it seems like all hope is lost, when it seems like the game is over, you can have peace, you can have confidence, because you know in the end we win. In Revelation 12, the Apostle John, he lays out this scene, and it's quite the image. It's why Revelation often confuses people. If you're a Christian, you've been reading through your Bible, a lot of, you're either one of these people who go right to Revelation because it's like, it's unbelievable imagery and you like, so want to know what it's all about. Or maybe you're the Christian, it's like, I, I kind of skip Revelation because it confuses me and I'm not sure all about it. The imagery can sometimes be quite abstract. But John tells us about this scene. And in this scene is a dragon. And this is the figure that John uses to represent the enemy. And this is what he saw. And, and the enemy is represented as a dragon. If you, think, if you think that the enemy is some scrawny guy in red tights with a plastic pitchfork, that's not the ferocity of who we're dealing with. John represents him as a dragon. And in this text, we read about 
this dragon. But we also read about a pregnant woman who is Mary and a baby who is Jesus. And, and we read about these three different scenes that are going on. And now, when, when you and I read a story, we read a story chronologically from start to finish in, in a linear fashion. But as we know, God doesn't see time in that way. Things are happening and at all at the same time often. It's, it's best to think of this scene that John's laying out as sort of a three-ring circus. Have you ever been to a, a three-ring circus? A lot of times there's something going on in ring one, something in ring two, and something in ring three. Sometimes all at the same time. And so you've got to divert your attention from one to the other, and you focus it on one for a little while, and then you jump around from spot to spot to spot. And that's what John's doing here with this vision that was given to him. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. And she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, we jump from that to another ring in verse 3. It says, Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. And his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky and he threw them to the earth. And these two scenes sort of cross over. And it says, He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And then we jump to verse 7, which is like a whole, the third ring. And then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So, that's kind of weird. I mean, if you're new to Christianity and you just picked up a Bible today, and you decided, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to read a little bit of this Bible I've been hearing about, and you started in Revelation chapter 12... You would either think this is awesome or you're like, I don't know what I've got myself into. But, and Revelation is incredibly interesting. There's so much significance in what I just read already. I mean, you can dive, deep dive and study the significance of what all those numbers mean and the, the horns and the crowns. And there's so much there and it makes it for a great Bible study. But I don't want to lose the theme in all the details today. And the theme is this. The dragon lost. The dragon's defeated. The dragon fails. He fails at defeating the woman. He fails at devouring the baby. And he fails when he goes to war with the angels. And so the theme is the dragon lost. And what we discover is apparently dragons are sore losers. He's not happy with all the losing that takes place. And in verse 12, it says, The devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. See, he knows his timeline. He knows the outcome. He knows there's no comeback. He knows that victory is not attainable. So what, does he, what time does he have left? What does he have left? Well, he, he's, his plan is to take down as many people as he can in the time he has left. Verse 17 explains the plan. And the dragon was angry at the woman, declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. See, the dragon declares war against the woman's children. I'm thinking, 
When I'm reading this, I'm like, somebody better warn these children. There's an angry dragon who's determined to destroy them. Someone tell the children. Who are the children? Well, it says, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. So wait, I'm in the dragon story? You're in the dragon story? Uh Uh-huh. See, the dragon's bent on on bringing as much death and destruction as possible, despite the fact that he's already defeated. So Revelation shows us the way that this dragon will fight his war. And the way to think of this is in terms of four battles. Like, if we went to another war, world war, the Allied forces are not just going to go to one spot, and this is where they're going to fight the enemy, and and if, if they lose there, the war is over. Naturally, there are different footholds across the world or the territory they're trying to fight in, and there could be multiple battles going on all at the same time. So Revelation shows us four battlefronts that are happening at the same time. And overall, there are more battlefronts throughout the book of Revelation, but we're going to look at these four ones that are significant. Now, what we need to understand, especially with Revelation, I told you it's, it's, a, it's a complicated book, but Revelation, some of the imagery that is used made a lot of sense. What, what doesn't make sense to us, it made a lot of sense to those who were given that book at that time. There was context for things like horsemen and horns and beasts. For us, it requires a little bit of study to understand. It's like if a thousand years from now, uh, someone came and they found a newspaper in, from 2021 and they, and they saw this this uh, article about this clash between the Toronto Raptors fighting against the Charlotte Hornets. And it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. It was like, why, is there, why in 2021 was there a battle between uh, a bunch of dinosaurs versus some little winged uh, bee type things? And, and you would look and go, well, you know, if you were here in 2021, you, you would know it's just an NBA basketball game. It requires context. So the original receivers of the Revelation would understand it in a way that we don't at first. And so John gives these images that represent tribulation, which is just a big word that means pain and suffering, a tribulation that they were experiencing at the time. And John uses these symbols so that the Roman government wouldn't understand what they were writing about and and persecute the Christians even more. But the images that John writes about is also a warning about the tribulation for Christians that would come in the future as well. So it kind of has this dual meaning for, for that time and for Christians in, in the future. So in Battlefront 1, there are four horsemen. And these, these, these men on horses, they, they come and they represent death and destruction that's been caused by war and hatred, conflict throughout the ages. They also represent division and, and conflict. And so, I mean, every time you turn on the, the, the news and there's a war or you hear about racism, conflict, you, you can hear the distant sounds of hooves. Every time there's a, a hate crime or violence or bullying, you, you hear the hooves. And then the second battlefront is the trumpet the sound of trumpet, the trumpet players, and seven trumpets are blown. And the first four times they're, they're, they're blown, they, they represent natural disasters. The first trumpet blows and the earth is contaminated. Another trumpet blows and the sky is polluted. And it speaks to natural disasters and sickness and disease. The unavoidable pain uh, of life on earth. And, uh, and then we hear the distant 
sound of trumpets when we walk through a cancer clinic. We hear the distant sound of trumpets every time we put on a mask because of COVID. Every time you hear of a tsunami or an earthquake or a tornado, you hear the sound of trumpets. I hope you're, I hope you're sticking with me. I, I know it, it's a lot. I know it seems like a lot, but I'm, I'm just trying to keep it very simple. And uh, so you have Battlefront 1, Four Horsemen, you violence, war, conflict, anger, hatred that we see around the world. And Battlefront 2, the trumpets, natural disaster, sickness, disease. In chapter 13, there's a third battlefront where we read about the beast of the sea. And the beasts represent political power and persecution. Verse 4 says in Revelation 13 says, They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Now, the beast was known to be the, the Roman government at the time. So they worship the dragon and they worship the beast. Now, if you read through this, there's strong reference to the Roman government, but it's bigger than that because it represents political power and persecution. The Roman government tried to use its power to force the church to stop worshiping God and worship them. It used its persecution as an attempt to destroy the church. Now, in the last 20 months, I've heard similar things from Christians in Canada where they see the parallels. But how do you worship the government? Well, you put your hope in the government instead of God. You believe that the hope of Christianity or faith in a, in a, a country is, is, um, is to make sure that your political, pow- your political party gets into power. The, the, that that will save Christianity in our country. That will save Christianity in, in this nation. But that's not how it works. Jesus doesn't truly need us. The Roman government went all in and wiping out Christianity off the earth. And it should have been easy. I mean, when you look at the two opponents... On paper, this powerful government versus this primitive group of believers, this group of believers that were foolish enough to think that grace and humility and love, generosity could change the world, except they'd watched their their savior, their rabbi, their leader, model it for them. And it's what won the war. And so the church fought back against the powerful government, but not in the way you and I would think to fight back at times. They didn't have any power. They didn't have a charter of rights and freedoms. They they didn't have a constitutionally protected freedom of religion to hold up. They could run for office to effect change. They had different weapons, like we mentioned, compassion, generosity, love and grace, humility. They turned the Roman world upside down by fighting with those weapons. It turns out that the Roman government was no match for a church that was passionately focused on their mission. The beasts of the sea don't stand a chance against the missional church. That's the third battlefront. The fourth battlefront is found in Revelation 17.1. And the image that is given is referred to as the great prostitute. Revelation 17.1 says, One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said. And I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. This, this, this image represents a perverse culture. I mean, the other battles are war and conflict and division, natural disasters and disease, political power and persecution. But now there is a great prostitute that represents a perverse culture. 
and Revelation gives some examples. It talks about a people that worship and are motivated by three things. Sexual pleasure, power and fame, and wealth and prosperity. Now, you, you know this, but you don't need to look any further than the strategies of advertising companies to know uh, where, how they try to get you. You're targeted hundreds of times by either uh, digital ads or billboards or commercials or radio or print. And you are targeted over and over to get you to think one way. And our, our young people grow up, grow up believing that what they, are, what they are portraying is the goal. Products that promise you that you'll be more attractive and you'll get more guys or get more girls and, or you'll become more powerful and you'll become famous and if you use this, you'll be, you'll be seen as wealthy or seen as rich. And, and this is how the great prostitute lures people away from God. I mean, this was written about Rome. But this is now. This is today. See, it turns out that it's hard for an old dragon to learn new tricks. He's not much of an innovator. He's just recycling the same old tricks and repackaging them. And, and over and over, we keep falling for them. And when you read about the great prostitute, she's dressed nicely and she looks harmless enough. But she plans to lure you in and make you her slave. You know, it's like that commercial that'll come across your screen. It's a beer commercial. And when you see the commercial, everyone in the commercial is good looking and they dress well and they're all happy. Their life looks incredibly great and you subconsciously believe it that maybe if I had that, then I would have what they have. But she plans to make you her slave. Because they never show you the guy who's passed out on the couch who has an addiction. An addiction that's cost him his job and cost him his marriage. And this couch that he's on, this is his buddy's couch, is now where he sleeps until he can get his life back in, on track. They don't tell you about Henry Ruggs this last week, a 22-year-old star for the Las Vegas Raiders of the NFL football player, devoted his whole life to becoming a star football player. In his second year, on the verge of stardom, this past week, Ruggs drank too much, drove his Corvette more than 250 kilometers an hour while intoxicated and ran into another vehicle, instantly killing the 23-year-old female passenger in the car. Henry Ruggs now faces up to 46 years in jail if convicted. She will lure you in and make you her slave. It doesn't tell you about the girl from the jeans commercial. Looks popular and looks like she has it all. The guys want to date her, the girls want to be her, but behind the scenes she has an eating disorder because her value comes from fitting in those jeans and keeping up this appearance. She was lured in, and, and now she's a slave. It doesn't tell you about the celebrity that has 10 million followers on Instagram, and they post pictures of themselves in exotic locations standing in front of expensive cars, and their followers adore them, and, and they would trade places with that person in a heartbeat, but they don't, what they don't know is that that person's compromised their values so many times to get to where they're at, and so much so they don't even recognize themselves in front of the mirror. It was their dream to get to where they are, but the only thing that now gets them through the day is the hit of cocaine. They're a slave. And so the dragon moves on and to its next victim, and the great prostitute has another prisoner. And John says to the church, don't be deceived by this woman. 
This battlefront is different. It's deceiving. It looks enticing and harmless, but and it, it looks like you're missing out if you reject her. Revelation 18.4 says, Come away from her, my people. Don't take part in her sins, or you will be punished with her. Because standing behind her is a dragon, who John has already told us is defeated, has nothing to lose now. He's angry, revengeful, and he wants to take down every person he can with him. So John lays out these four battlefronts, and at the time this book was written, the readers probably would have looked around and felt like, we're losing on all four fronts. And when we look around on, in 2021, we can think the same, that we're losing on all four fronts. It can, it can feel like we're losing. It can feel like anger and bitterness is, is winning. It can feel like disease, cancer, COVID is winning. It can feel like violence and racism and division are winning. It can feel like drug addiction and mental illness and, and depression are winning. It can feel like a government that wants to name, wipe the name of God off the lips of, of every person in the page of history is winning. But John says, let me tell you how it ends. The battle has already been won. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he said three words. It is finished. Actually, he said one word. Our English translation is three, but the Greek word Jesus spoke on the cross was tetelestai. And when you read it, it might sound like defeat. When you read Jesus says it is finished or tetelestai, it sounds like, well, I tried, but it's over. I tried, but it is finished, tetelestai. But tetelestai is actually not a word of defeat. It's a word of victory. In the same word that people would shout in the streets when the war was won. People would run around from house to house. They'd been in this war for such a long time. And they got word, came back that the war was over. And they would, they would go around yelling, Tetelestai, Tetelestai, come out and celebrate with us. It is finished. Victory is declared. It's the same word that we used when a large debt was finally paid off. A debt that maybe looked at one point overwhelming that... Even every payment seemed like it was a small dent and they would never get paid off. Maybe that's your student loan. And finally, when that last payment was made, you would rejoice and maybe whisper to yourself, maybe tears running down your eyes, to tell us die. It is finished. This is the word Jesus uses. It's not a defeated word. Even though he's hanging on a cross, gasping for his last breath, and he would use that last breath to declare victory over sin, to tell us die. To tell us die. This should change, this word should change the way you wake up tomorrow. It should change your outlet. Your Savior has already won the war. And despite the battles that wage around you, Jesus has already declared to tell us die. Going back to Revelation 12, verse 11, it says that those that were facing tribulations declared victory through the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. See, when the lamb won, they won. They claimed victory because their king did. They claimed victory through their testimony, not because of what they'd done, but because of what was done for them. They spoke victory to everyone and everything around them. To Telestai. This word intersected everything they did. Every conversation, every decision, every prayer. They didn't tell God about their problems. To Telestai, they told their problems about their God. It is 
finished. See, we fight from victory, not for victory. Spoiler alert. Later, John tells us that a day is coming. A day we read about in Revelation 21.4. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. To tell us die.